One of the most iconic Indian curries has its origins in British colonial India. But was this dish created by South Asian cooks working in Britain? Or was it created in India and then eagerly adopted by the West? Today we're talking about the history of tikka masala and footnoting history. Hello again, it's Kristen here, and today we're going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite cuisines and one of the most delicious things ever, tikka masala. If you'd like a captioned version of this episode, you can find it on YouTube, and if you are unfamiliar with Hindi, it might be helpful to watch it there, so you can write down all of the things that you absolutely need to try because you will be hungry after this. And this is the part where I have to stand back a little in awe that I get to talk about tikka masala as part of my job because I love Indian food. It's my favorite thing in the world to eat. And it's so lucky that India and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and Pakistan, all of which are relatively new borders, by the way, have a lot of variation in their cuisine. So there are a million things to try. And in my experience, they're all good. Today we're going to focus on just one dish, though, that has some disputed origins, but which is generally referred to as quote-unquote Indian, as if there aren't regional variations in food within India itself, but that's the category it gets assigned, and you can find tikka masala in a lot of Indian restaurants. Many of these restaurants serve food from the northern regions of India, like Punjab, in the north, many dishes start and finish with yogurt, as opposed to the south, which tends to use more coconut milk. And that is how tikka masala generally begins, with a yogurt, garlic, ginger, and spice marinade. Tikka masala is usually made with chicken. Tikka literally means a small piece of meat in Hindi, and masala means ingredients or spices, and it often refers to a spice blend. The chicken is cooked in a tandoor oven. And tandoors are these cylindrical clay ovens that get insanely hot and whose results just cannot be replicated with a regular oven. Sorry, modern cookbooks that try to make us all feel better, but no, there is no substitute for the tandoor. Anyway, the chicken is cut up into small pieces as befitting the name of the dish. It's threaded onto skewers and then cooked in the oven. And then the chicken or the paneer, if you're going vegetarian, is put into this sauce. Guys, it is this luxurious spiced tomato sauce that is generally finished with cream and you will eat the entire thing. It is impossible not to. Tikka masala is really good, but we don't really know how it came to be and it may not even be quote unquote Indian. The country we know today as India is officially the Republic of India and it was formed in 1947 after gaining independence from the British Commonwealth, which had ruled both directly and indirectly. India has a long history that predates the British presence, of course, and that has nothing to do with the British, but the British are involved in the story of tikka masala, so that's why we're focusing on their involvement. The English had been in India for some time by 1947, about 350 years, actually. The two Elizabeths, Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II, kind of bookend the whole presence. In 1599, before there even was a British Commonwealth, the first iteration of the East India Company was formed, and by 1615, the EIC was trading out of both the West and East Coasts of India. 
It was one of those early modern joint stock enterprises established by Royal Charter that was meant to provide a lot of return on investment and that, in all practicality, paved the way for many European colonies in the New World, Asia, and Africa. The EIC set up what they called factories in India. And these are not factories as you're probably thinking of them. These were warehouses and living quarters for Europeans. Small, contained clusters of buildings whose sole purpose was trade. And things like spices, of course, but also textiles, minerals, dyes, and tea. These factories functioned as trading bases and workshops during the day, but by night they were kind of like dormitories that could house hundreds of people, most of whom were men, though there are occasionally a handful of widows and young women found in the roles. The merchants in charge of them were called factors, which is how they got their name. The first English factory was built in Madras in 1640, and by the 18th century, there were hundreds of them in various parts of India. The history of tikka masala cannot be unraveled from the history of the British in India. By the mid-18th century, the British had established a firm foothold in the subcontinent and were expanding beyond their limited factory settings to more areas. The power of the Mughal dynasty, which rose to prominence in the northern part of India in the 1520s, had, by that point, waned, and other European countries were not proving to be much competition. More and more British troops were arriving to secure these new possessions and protect British trade interests, and with them came more ordinary British people who wanted to take advantage of new economic opportunities and who were not employed by the EIC. In 1873, the EIC was formally disbanded. From 1858 to 1947, the British ruled India directly, and this period is often referred to as either the Indian Empire or the British Raj. By the turn of the 19th century, many British people living in India were happily smoking hookahs, taking regular baths, and wearing lightweight Indian clothing, and of course, enjoying the food. The English weren't the first Europeans to set up shop in India, though. The Portuguese were there in 1498 in Calicut on the Malabar coast. And they stayed for quite a while, too. In fact, a lot of southern India, especially the region around Goa, has a lot of Portuguese influence. And it was the Portuguese, by way of the Spanish and Spanish ventures into the Caribbean and Mexico, who brought the tomato and the chili pepper to India, both of which are ingredients in tikka masala. India had long been growing pepper by the 16th century, but a different kind of pepper. Medieval Europeans got their black pepper and long pepper from the Malabar coast, as well as islands in Indonesia. In the later 15th century, Christopher Columbus wrote about a hot spice the indigenous people of the Caribbean called aji. And this is probably the first European taste of the chili pepper. Chili peppers belong to the genus Capiscum, whereas black pepper and long pepper belong to the piper genus. So they're totally different plants, and they do taste different, but all add a level of spice. Christopher Columbus's confusion over where he thought he had landed and the plant he was eating is one of his smaller sins, but can still be really confusing to people. The chili peppers in a lot of South Asian cuisines are these tiny green, sometimes red peppers, and they pack a delightful punch. Early 16th century Indians thought they were pretty good too. The climate and soil in many parts of India is very conducive to growing these capiscum peppers, and they quickly became part of many everyday diets. Ayurvedic medicine, which is a tradition of medicine whose roots can be traced all the way back to the first century BCE, teaches that the body needs to be kept in a state of balance. In Ayurvedic medicine, there are certain elements at play, and ideally the body should not be too hot or too cold. 
The foods you eat and the medicines you consume should contribute to a harmonious state. And if you listen to one of my earlier episodes on theriac, it's a system that is similar to classical Greek and Galenic medicine with the four humors. Ayurvedic medicine adopted the chili pepper into many of its applications, and it was thought to be particularly good at fighting cholera. But what's more than that, chili peppers just taste really good. And because they can be grown easily, most people have access to them, and they're a good source of vitamin C. The chili pepper was making an appearance in London in the 1540s, thanks to trade with Portugal and Spain. But it wasn't until the 19th century that England really started warming up, so to speak. I didn't mean to do that, but yeah, that works started warming up to cooking with chilies. Many recipes for tikka masala call for some amount of chili, but one of the appeals of the dish for many people is that it is kind of mild, and so many versions of tikka masala tend to go light on the chilies. The tomato, which had a similar route into India with the Portuguese, is a core component in many tikka masala recipes, along with cream. Cream and many other dairy products were long used in Indian cooking, but the tomato was indigenous to the Americas, and it was not quite as quickly adopted by Indian palates as the chili was. Tomatoes are also pretty high in vitamin C and A and E, but Ayurvedic tradition holds that tomatoes can trigger both hot or wet responses in the body, and so overdoing it is not recommended. Some historians believe that it was the British in India who eagerly ate the tomatoes the Portuguese introduced to them and who employed Indian cooks who really launched the tomato into Indian cuisine. Tomatoes like chilies do very well in the subcontinent's climate and by the 19th century they had become a staple ingredient in many different regions' cuisines. Whether it was in the days of the East India Company or the Raj, whether they were eating a ton of tomatoes and far fewer chilies, the British very much wanted to project an aura of power and regality. And one of the ways they did this was by putting on big dinners called burakanas that were meant to impress with a capital I. Back home, ruling elites were fond of their big dinners, and theirs very often emphasized meat. Many Hindu Indians were vegetarian, and so this was something of a departure from local custom, but even the Muslim Mughals didn't eat as much meat as the British did. People poked fun at them for it, but... The British saw these big meals as aristocratic, and they took eating very seriously. An 1810 book called The Guide to Gentlemen Intended for the Civil, Military, or Naval Service of the Honorable East India Company makes sure to note that most English garden plants, like cabbages and cauliflower and lettuce, thrived in Indian gardens, but they weren't eating these things in a British style. Most Brits living in India ate what they called curries. And you may also recall from an earlier footnoting history episode, The Form of Curry, that curry is a Middle English word that means cookery or cuisine, and it dates to at least the later 14th century. But in this context, it means something a little bit different. The curry that is a particular style of dish, a stewed meat, fish, or vegetable made with spices and turmeric and eaten with rice, goes back to at least 1598 and a book called The Discourse of Voyages into the East and West Indies. Here, the author writes that, quote, most of their fish is eaten with rice, that they seethe in broth, which they then put upon the rice, and is somewhat sour. But it tasteth well, and is called carol. And I realize that carol probably doesn't sound very much like curry, but this was a Portuguese word for Indian broths made with onions, ginger, spices, and butter that the British then adopted. Hannah Glass's 1774 cookbook, The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy, has a recipe for a curry made, quote, the Indian way. 
and it likely does resemble what many people today would identify as curry. Chicken cut up into small pieces, cooked with onions, butter, turmeric, ginger, pepper, and then stewed and finished with cream and lemon juice, and then served over boiled rice, is what appears in her book. None of these are quite tikka masala, but we're on the road. It is historians' understanding that curry was a word that predated the English presence in India, but that became an English catch-all phrase for many different Indian dishes that were known by individual names, or a dish that used Indian ingredients and cooking techniques but was more Indian-ish than Indian. A lot of people today would classify tikka masala as a curry. The British were aware of regional diversity within India, but didn't always appreciate or care about the nuances. They were in many parts of the subcontinent, especially by the 19th century, and they tended to travel around, taking what they liked from one part of India to another. As I mentioned a little earlier, they also employed Indian cooks in their retinues of servants. And those Indian cooks adjusted their recipes to appeal to their British employers, often dialing back the spice and the ghee. So, in some ways, the Brits were responsible for getting the ball rolling in terms of pan-Indian cuisine, but their cuisine also catered to British tastes and so was not unadulterated. For a long time, only the British in India actually ate these things, but Anglo-influenced Indian cuisine would soon find its way west. The first Indian restaurant opened in London in 1811, and it was meant to cater to former East India Company officials. It was called the Hindustani Coffee House, and it was operated by Sheikh Dean Mohammed on George Street. He promised the finest cuisine, as well as a smoking room where gents could indulge in their hookahs and lounge on bamboo chairs, probably reminiscing about the good old days. Mohammed's restaurant didn't unfortunately last too long, and he was out of business within two years, but it seems his failure had more to do with these officials bringing over their own personal cooks from India and less to do with the quality of his food. People in Britain really, really wanted their Indian food, or a British version of it. William Makepeace Thackeray, the author of the 1848 novel Vanity Fair, even wrote a poem to Curry that calls it, quote, a dish for emperors to feed upon. This was just one aspect of the general British longing for, quote unquote, oriental goods, such as tea, porcelain, and textiles, but it was a robust one. Hannah Glass's recipe collection is the first known one to contain Indian-inspired dishes, but more soon followed. By the 1850s, generic curry powders were listed in lieu of individual spices and lots of companies named things like Payne's Oriental Warehouse in Regent and Mortimer Streets and the Leicester Square Oriental Depot sold their own version of Indian spice mixes. By the turn of the 20th century, you could find these British Indianish powders all over the place, and they were not great if you were looking to replicate unique Indian dishes with complex flavor profiles. That's my diplomatic way of saying that they were pretty bland and interchangeable, and they often just got dumped into the pot. But the idea of spice mixes was certainly something that the British picked up from their time in India. Indian cooks often use masalas or spice mixes, but they generally make them in the moment, toasting and pulverizing the spices right before cooking and adding the spices at different stages in the cooking process. So it is kind of a different animal. In 1895 and 1896, there was an exhibition held in London called the Empire of India Exhibition, and it fed the public's fascination with India. It wasn't really aiming to replicate a realistic Indian experience because, I mean, 
How could you have one experience that encompassed all of India's very different regions? Even the former EIC people didn't go because they knew better. But other people had fun with it, exploring an Indian town with shops, performers, and, of course, food. More empire exhibitions followed with their own nod to an impression of Indian culture. And in 1926, Viraswamy's restaurant opened, and it remains the oldest Indian restaurant in Britain today. People still think it's pretty good. Reportedly, it's the Queen's favorite curry house. It's a bit upscale and even has a Michelin review, which is maybe why the Queen likes it. I don't really know. If you go to the further reading section for this episode on the Footnoting History website, you can find a link for Viraswamy's and peruse some sample menus. You won't find chicken tikka masala there, but some reviewers on TripAdvisor said they had chicken tikka masala at Viraswamy's, and it was pretty awesome. In the wake of the British Raj, with mass emigration from the subcontinent to Britain, Indian restaurants exploded. Partly it had something to do with genuinely enjoying the food, or at least British versions of it. But many historians believe that food was a safe way to partake in multiculturalism, and the highly stylized Indian restaurant that emphasized mystique and exoticism was a way for Brits to bask in nostalgia for the former glory days of the empire. In the later 20th century, when Britain was suffering a lot from economic problems, many people quite enjoyed the experience of the Indian restaurant and all it represented to them. If not at Viraswamy's, you'll definitely find chicken tikka masala in many many places in Britain. There are thousands of Indian restaurants in England alone, and they're not confined to just the big cities. Go to any pub in the UK, and you're likely to see a tikka masala on the menu along with the fish and chips. It's become just that ubiquitous. But the origin story of tikka masala is a bit murky, and you can find lots of different versions of it. The most common one that is not supported with a shred of evidence beyond individual claims is this. Some time ago, in Glasgow, Scotland, a bus driver came into the Shish Mahal restaurant and ordered a chicken dish. But he didn't like what he got. He said it was too dry and he sent it back. The Bangladeshi chef, Ali Ahmed Aslam, put some tomato soup, cream, and yogurt together with some spices and put it over the dried chicken. And that was a big hit. The story doesn't always remark on the ethnicity of the bus driver, but most people assume that he was a white Scottish dude. Sometimes the story takes place in London. Sometimes it's not a bus driver. Sometimes it's the 1950s. Sometimes it's the 1970s. But the general outline of non-Indian wants a curry, but wants a British curry and complains until he gets it, remains. Culinary historians Peter and Colleen Grove are of the opinion that the dish However, it ultimately came to be, and they think they don't have enough information to make a final determination, is Indian-ish, but that chicken tikka masala was not invented in India itself. Probably chicken tikka masala is based off of a dish invented at the Moti Mahal restaurant in New Delhi in the 1950s, Merg Makhni, or butter chicken. If you've ever had butter chicken, and if you haven't, wow, were you missing out? Butter chicken is similar to tikka masala. In some recipes, the pieces of chicken don't get a yogurt marinade in the beginning, but at the end, as the name suggests, the dish is always finished with a glorious amount of butter. Some people find butter chicken to be a bit spicier than tikka masala, although not how I make it. There's always plenty of chili in my tikka masala because I'm cooking and that's how I like it. Generally speaking, though, chicken tikka masala is kind of a 
gateway curry for people who don't think they're going to like Indian food. And if they like it, that's great. It'll probably lead them to other Indian dishes and it is delicious. But chicken tikka masala is typically regarded as more Indian-ish than Indian. A piece written in the UK Times called Tikka Masala a, quote, designer curry built in Britain to soak up copious amounts of lager on Friday nights. And that really may not be far from the truth, or at least now it is. In 2001, then-British Foreign Secretary Robin Cook gave his now-famous chicken tikka masala speech to the Social Market Foundation in London. He said he wanted to, quote, celebrate Britishness. He claimed that many people felt that Britishness was under siege from increased immigration, from membership in the EU, and a loss of power to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Not to worry, Robin Cook basically said, Britishness is going strong and multiculturalism is part of what it means to be British. Chicken tikka masala, he went on to say, is just case in point. He said it was a national British dish. It embodied the fusion of Indian culinary tradition with British tastes and, well, there you go. The British are well known for adopting foreign cuisines and incorporating them into British cooking. It's not just Indian food. They did it with French, Italian, and Greek food, too. In fact, many cultures do this, including Indian ones. Many dishes considered traditionally Indian, and definitely air quotes for that, were imports themselves. Biryani rice dishes and kebabs came from Persia via the Mughals. The Portuguese, of course, brought the tomato and chili, but also potatoes and cashews. Food travels. Cuisines are very adaptive, and trying to find anything that is purely authentic to an area or a culture is probably going to be pretty difficult. In some ways, Robin Cook was kind of right. Chicken tikka masala really is everywhere in the UK, and it's beginning to become more popular in the United States, too. Not only are there thousands of restaurants serving tikka masala, but you can also find ready-made sauces and meals in just about any UK supermarket. You can often, but not always, find a recipe for tikka masala in Indian cookbooks, too. Pushpas Pan's voluminous India cookbook includes one, as does the highly popular Instant Pot cookbook by Urvashti Pitra. British chef Jamie Oliver has a few chicken tikka masala recipes, as does the American cook Rachel Ray. I can't speak to the Rachel Ray or Jamie Oliver versions, but Pons and Pitras are excellent. If you try any of these, please let me know how it goes on the Footnoting History social media. I promise you'll love it. And if you don't, well, what can I say? You made it wrong. Chicken tikka masala may or may not have been the incidental invention of a Bangladeshi chef meant to appease a British palate, but it does have South Asian roots and it does reflect the presence and experience of colonialism in the British Empire. The UK may no longer be part of the European Union, but tikka masala is here to stay. I know what I'm having for dinner tonight. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who help allow us to keep Footnoting History open access. And until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnote.